please turn your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. If you would like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 575. Isaiah 11, beginning with verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word is sure and steadfast. Speak to us today through the power of your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Tree stumps are annoying. I have a few in my yard from trees that were cut down long before we were there and the stumps were left in the ground and they're rotting little by little from the inside out. They're a tripping hazard, grass doesn't grow there, they're a wonderful dwelling place for bugs and ants and they're just pretty much useless and in the way and a complete nuisance. Well under God's judgment this is how Israel appeared to the rest of the world. As we talked about last week, Isaiah had pronounced judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the dominant world power of that day. They were the first of the great Middle Eastern empires. In Israel's case, God was using Assyria, Assyria as a means of judgment on them because of their sin. But that didn't mean that Assyria was going to escape God's gaze for their sin and wickedness. Take a look back at chapter 10 leading up to our passage today in verse 12, where it says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, when he's finish judging Israel, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And then moving down to verse 15, shall the axe 
boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? So basically God was saying, Assyria, you're an implement, a a tool in my hands for my purposes, and when I'm done using you in that way, my judgment will be coming on you as well. And further down in verse 21, we read the promise to Israel that a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, that spark of hope that even in the midst of judgment, there will be a return to God one day. But that's followed by a counter-promise to Assyria in verse 25. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And chapter 10 ends with these verses, in verse, beginning in verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You might know, if you're a student of the Bible, that Lebanon was known for its very tall cedar trees. Solomon had imported a number of these trees into Israel to help build the temple there. And at this time in history, many years later, Lebanon was under the Assyrian rule. It was part of that empire, and so it was an appropriate reference in comparing the destruction of kingdoms to trees that have been cut down all the way down to the stump. And God would cut down Israel to a stump, Using Assyria, within 100 years after that, Assyria would be cut down by Babylon as it rose to power. But their judgment, Assyria's judgment, didn't come with words of hope for a future. Not like Israel's did. For Assyria, like all the empires of the earth, was eventually relegated to the dustbin of history, only now to be dug up and uncovered by archaeologists. The final blow for God's people in this series of judgment would come when that great power, Babylon, would invade the southern kingdom, sack Jerusalem, and take many captive, including Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God's people would be cut down to nothing but a lifeless stump a nation whose glory had passed, cut down to the nub, useless and laughable in the eyes of the world and the other nations. But God wasn't finished with his people because God had a promise to keep and God keeps his promises all the time, every one. The root underneath this stump was teeming with life. And one day it would burst forth in glory and new life. And this is the hope of the Messiah that is given to us as it's just been read in chapter 11. Peace has dawned through the coming of the Prince of Peace. Our passage began with these words, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. When Rebecca so 
Abley read the passage earlier, did you notice the parallel reference as she finished in verse 10? In that day, the root of Jesse, back to that idea, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the passage today is bookended with this idea, this reference to a stump or a root of Jesse. Well, what in the world is that talking about? And who is Jesse? Well, Jesse was the father of King David. Jesse was not a king himself. David was the first in the royal line. He was the first king. Jesse was simply a poor shepherd living in a backwater town of Bethlehem that had no significance in its time. But Jesse was the originator of the king. He was the source of the line. And so not only is Jesus an ancestor of David, but he is before King David. He goes back to the source. Not a lesser king who merely comes after David, but one who is in first place, the true king of Israel, the one that David was a symbol of and a sign of. And he, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, emerges from a lifeless stump, bringing new life to God's people, eternal life with a forever reign as the Prince of Peace. Oh, what a glorious hope. Notice, too, that the Messiah is described in verse 1 as a shoot born out of this stump of Jesse, and in verse 10 that the Messiah is described as the root of that stump of Jesse. Well, that's odd. How can the Messiah be what comes out of the stump in growth, but also what feeds the stump as its source? Well, the Messiah is both the fruit or product of the stump as well as the source of it. This is the third time as we've looked through Isaiah that this point has been brought out, at, at least indirectly, if not directly, emphasizing the two natures of the Messiah. He is truly human and truly God. We referenced chapter 7 last week, and we sang about it a good bit today. This idea of a, a virgin conceiving and bearing a son and calling his name Emmanuel, God with us, God and human, divine and one of us. Additionally, in chapter 9, last week, we saw these phrases that a, a child is born, for unto us a child is born of a woman, a human, our representative. But that Messiah was also a gift is given. The Son of God, a Son is given, the very eternal one. And so here we see these two aspects of the nature of Christ and we're reminded in chapter 11 today that he was born a human, a shoot sprouting forth in life out of this stump with a lineage from Jesse. But Jesus is also the source of life. And that truth is reiterated in John's gospel in that first chapter. And in Colossians chapter 1, as we studied even this summer, that he is the source of all creation, eternally existing. 
This is a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around, and yet it is a central and very important doctrine as we go into the Advent season understanding or beginning and trying to understand the two natures of Christ, that he was truly God and truly man. Mary was given this fulfillment when the angel Gabriel came to her to tell her she was pregnant in Luke chapter 1. Notice the the wording here and how it emphasizes both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. We see those two attributes, his his humanity, but also he is a forever being. He is God, he is divine, this incarnate one, this one who took on flesh. Next in our outline, as you'll see, we're looking to see that the the spiritual insight that Jesus has. Well, you might be thinking, well, well, of course, he's God. I mean, isn't he a superhuman with special powers and, and insight that none of us could possibly have? Well, this is where the doctrine of these two natures comes into play and is difficult for us to completely understand and grasp. But when we speak of Jesus being truly human, we mean that in his humanity, He was everything it means to be human, except having a sin nature. When Jesus was little, he scraped his knee, he bruised up. As he grew, he had to learn how to read and write. He was limited in time and space as we are with a human body, and he was limited in his mind with a human mind, in terms of his knowledge and having to learn. To make him out to be some kind of superhuman is minimizing his humanity, and that'd be a huge mistake for us to do. Of course, we must clarify that Jesus is also fully God, divine, everything that it means to be God. In highlighting his humanity, I'm not minimizing his deity in any way. Paul deals with this seeming contradiction in our minds in Philippians 2 when he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Understand that if Jesus wasn't truly, fully, completely man, he couldn't have fulfilled the law and thereby give us his righteousness for accomplishing that. He couldn't have really died for us if he wasn't fully human, and he couldn't have been our substitute or our representative. He had to be fully human, one of us. And this is an important point as we walk through next verses two and three and consider the prophecy here. I believe we see God in his trinity here as well, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice how it reads, and the spirit of the Lord, and you'll remember as we talked about in the Psalms this summer, that when you see Lord in all caps, it's a reference to Jehovah God, Israel's God, Yahweh. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Messiah. For me, this brings to mind a possible fulfillment at Jesus' baptism, 
in Matthew chapter 3. There it says, Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We see the whole Trinity represented in that passage, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I believe we do in our passage today. And the Spirit came to rest upon Jesus. This Prince of Peace who was fully human was granted divine insight through the Holy Spirit of God. And we're giving three pairings in our passage today of what that insight looks like. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus possesses great, incredible wisdom. And with that wisdom comes a practical understanding of how to implement and use the wisdom that he has. Recalls that wonderful title, that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Not wonderful like last night's dinner, or how you feel about your wife or your husband, but truly wonderful divine, otherworldly, something that causes us to step back in, in wonder and amazement at the counsel that he provides and at the knowledge that he has. The Spirit also fills Jesus with counsel and might. His plans are best, and he has the power to back them up and to implement them. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And thirdly, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord refers to a submission and obedience to the will of God. It was Jesus' perfect obedience in this life that he lived, the years that he lived as a human among us, that provides us righteousness, credit to us on the cross. That idea continues in verse 3 of our text. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In the original language, the word translated delight into English has with it a sense of aroma or smell. For Jesus, submitting to God out of reverence and awe, obeying his Father in all things, possessed a sweet aroma that brought him delight. All of our senses can bring us delight, right? We can see things that we enjoy. We can hear, we can touch, but there's something about the sense of smell that reaches into the recesses of who we are and pulls forth amazing memories and pleasant things as the aroma is sweet to us. And for Jesus, his submission, his obedience to the will of the Father was that delight, was that sweet aroma to him. This reminds me and brings to mind the night that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane when, the, when he asked his father to remove this cup of suffering. But Jesus submitted in the fear of the Lord to his father's will. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus found his delight in obedience to the father. What an amazing pattern for us that our Savior's given to show us what it means to delight in the fear of the Lord. I'm going to be honest with you. This is a little bit hard for me to wrap my mind around and appreciate. To delight 
in the fear of the Lord, in obedience to him. Our senses will lead us astray. We'll choose the path of least resistance all the time. But God calls us to follow the example of our Savior in this and to trust his providence no matter what our senses tell us, no matter what we see coming our way. I'm going to ask God to help me in this grace, and I wonder if any of you might join me in that prayer. God, help me to find my greatest pleasure in submitting in awe and reverence to you, like Jesus did. What a great prayer for us today. In verse 4, we see the rule of the Prince of Peace. Have you ever noticed that during political campaigns, which there have been some recently, and will continue to be for a while yet, that the candidates, regardless of their party, are not usually stumping for the votes of the poor and marginalized of our society. Why is that? Well, they can't do anything for them. They can't attend and buy tickets to their $10,000 fundraising campaign dinners. They can't give them anything back in, in a, for a special favor in return. But the Prince of Peace, in his reign, is preoccupied with the poor and marginalized of society. After all, the angels were even sent to a bunch of low-life shepherds that night in Bethlehem with a gospel announcement. And if the Messiah treats the poor and the marginalized with righteousness and equity, you can be sure of his even-handedness for all of his subjects. He rules in perfect righteousness and faithfulness. But at the same time, he will strike down the wicked with a word from his mouth, with his breath. The path to peace involves elevating the powerless and bringing down the wicked who are powerful. The path to peace involves righteousness and justice, and that is the only path to true peace. The second major point in your outline, peace is dawned as a kingdom of peace. The kingdom of peace, the kingdom of Christ, exists wherever God's people exist. And one day it will culminate in a new heaven, a new earth, that will be a home for God and for his people. It's a glorious hope that we have. If you know your Bible or you know the stories from Sunday school, you'll remember that in the very beginning, God created a paradise. Everything he created, he declared good. It was complete. It was at rest. It was in peace. <clears throat> Humanity could enjoy this good creation and fellowship with their God. But sin came in. It entered the world. It destroyed the peace. Chaos ensued. War began, conflict came, and the creation has been at war ever since, all of these many generations. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, listen to these words as he explains creation situation. 
for the creation waits with eager longing in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You're not the only part of the creation that is groaning and wishing for peace. All of it is. The whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, wishing for peace. And when the Prince of Peace sets up his reign and gives birth to a new heaven and a new earth, the creation itself will be at home again. The garden will be restored. Paradise lost will be paradise gained. Isaiah prophesies in verse 6, six and 7 in these amazing words that wolves and lambs, and leopards and goats will exist side by side in peace along with the lion and the calf. I mean, this is usually dinner, right? The cow and the bear will graze while their young are at rest together. The lion's going to become a herbivore. Well, so much for Mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom. The ratings are going to plummet. No more lions chasing wildebeests and attacking herds of them. And you know, those news stories where visitors to the national parks are taking pictures with buffaloes and getting gored, we're not going to be able to make fun of them anymore. We can't even imagine this, can we? I mean, it's beyond our wildest dreams that we could exist that way or that the world could exist that way. It sounds like a fantasy, something Disney would make. But the promise of God is that it will be true one day. And humanity will also be at home again. Remember that when Adam and Eve sinned against God in paradise, it was the serpent that tempted them and led them into sin. And as part of the curse, the Lord put hostility between the serpent and Eve and her offspring. That's us. And to this day, when most of us see a snake, we shoot first and ask questions later. Now, for you snake apologists, please don't come up and tell me that there are good snakes and that we shouldn't do that. And so I know, I know there's good snakes. <clears throat> but in the new creation, even that relationship will be restored. Did you notice that it said that toddlers are going to be playing around the hole like peekaboo with the snake in its den? This is mind-blowing. They won't hurt or destroy in all of the Lord's holy mountain. That's a reference to Mount Zion the dwelling place of the glory of God. In that place and in that time, all of the creation will be at peace with one another. And Isaiah's prophecy also tells us how this is even possible. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a fascinating phrase, an idea. Imagine it. The whole earth. Maybe we could go a step further and say the whole universe whatever that new creation looks like, will be filled completely to the brim with the knowledge of God. 
in that day, everyone will know God in his fullness. Boy, how different is that than our current situation? Even for those of us who know God, who've been walking with the Lord for decades and years, we still have this sin that creeps in and that prevents us from seeing clearly, clearly that prevents us from knowing God in the depths of our hearts like we would like to. Paul tells us we're deficient in our understanding of knowing God's love because now we see through a glass dimly. We only know in part. It's a partial story. We don't see the full picture. But imagine for a moment what it'll be like in the coming kingdom of peace to see face to face and to know fully even as we are fully known. What a beautiful idea. Isn't that what many of us crave in, in, the, in, in the longings of our heart is that we would be fully known and not in our, our sin, but in what God is making us into, in the righteousness of Christ and where our desire for him is, that we would be known in that way. Perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect love, Finally, at home, at rest with God. And in that kingdom of peace where creation will be at home and humanity will be at home, God will also be at home. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. No longer will the root of Jesus be hidden under the stump of Jesse. But having emerged from it and having grown into a mighty tree of life, he will stand tall as a sure sign to the nations of the world that their kingdom, the kingdoms of the world, have become the kingdom of, his, of Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Nations shall come to Jesus' light, kings to the brightness of his rising. The Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, look, look at this, behold this. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. God will be at home and we will be with him. I have some more good news. We don't have to wait on the spiritual reality of this. We can live in the light and glory of it right now. Christ has already come to give us peace. And we can lay hold of it and have peace in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, despite our circumstances. And first, while we may not be able to see him in his fullness, 
There is more of God for us to know in his word than we will ever exhaust in this life. He has revealed to us all that we need to know about him in our lives right now in his word. And as we seek him in his word, we will know more and more of this Prince of Peace that it speaks of and his kingdom of peace. If you want peace in your life, let me ask that again. If you want peace in your life, then sit at the feet of the Prince of Peace and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, what? Rest for your soul. Let's, next, let's ask ourselves a couple of diagnostic questions as we wrap up this morning. First and most importantly, are you at peace with God? My prayer as your pastor is that all of us in this room, all of those in the hearing of my voice, that we know this Prince of Peace is Savior and are trusting in him for our salvation and for having peace with God. But the reality is that in any church, there are likely those who are members of the visible body, but not yet part of the true spiritual body of Christ. Jesus administers his peace to his people and to the world through his sacrifice on the cross. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with one another, and peace with creation. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been brought near to God through Jesus' sacrifice? He promises, and again, remember what I said at the beginning, he keeps his promises. He promises peace with God to all those who call on him in faith for their salvation. Paul says in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus paid the debt of sin for his people that we could not pay. He shed his blood for our salvation. Do you believe this? If you believe it, have you professed it? Have you confessed your sin to God and pleaded with him to save you, placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone? This is the path to peace with God. This is the only way of salvation that we have. And you know what? If you have more questions about what it means to be at peace with God in your soul, there is no greater discussion that your pastors would rather have with you than that. None. Nothing would delight us more. The second diagnostic question is, are you at peace with the body of Christ? I want us to look back to a passage we studied this summer in the book of Colossians for a moment. Listen to these words from chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. We are all sinners, every one of us, everybody in this room. And we're not fully sanctified yet. We've got a ways to go. And we worship and live alongside other sinners. Even as believers, we still struggle sometimes with pride and anger towards one another. It's the reality of our fall. It's the reality of who we are. So what does it mean to live out the peaceful existence that God has called us to? Well, it doesn't mean absence of conflict or sin, but it does mean that we live in the light of the Prince of Peace and that he can help us on this journey with one another. He's the head of the body. He's the glue that holds us together. And he's called us to live in peace. So I'm going to ask you the same question again. Are you at peace with the body of Christ? And if you can't say that you are, then you must pursue it by seeking Christ and his divine enablement and by reconciling with your brothers and sisters with whom you have conflict. We cannot function properly if we're not at peace with one another. And if we allow it, Satan would like nothing better than to use division within the church to sideline us from our calling to make disciples for the kingdom. In a world filled with sin and conflict, the church must be a peace-filled refuge for believers. We must demonstrate our unity and peace to the watching world by our love for one another. And what about at home? Is your home a place where the peace of Christ reigns? I have no doubt that many of us struggle to live in peace at home. Determine in your heart today, in this moment, to seek peace in love in your home. Make your home a place that reflects the eternal kingdom of peace that we just read about and looked at in God's word. Not the warring, fallen world that's all around us. Because that's going to all end one day. That's going to be over. Prepare yourselves for the kingdom of light, for the kingdom of peace, living with one another in unity and in love. Prepare your children for that. Make your homes haven, havens of peace. Make sure that this is a priority, even if it means seeking some help in getting there. God has gifted his church with many who are skilled counselors who reflect the pattern of that wonderful counselor that we have in Jesus who can guide us in our brokenness through his word to help us in our time of need. Don't be satisfied with living in conflict. Don't give up. Determine and pray that God would help you in this process of being sanctified in him. And in all of this, remember that God's grace is sufficient for you. No one is ever too far gone from God. No conflict is ever outside of God's ability to redeem it for his glory and for your good. No sin against those that we love is ever beyond the hope of his grace and his peace. 
the Prince of Peace has come to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And of him, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, of him, the nation shall inquire, and his resting place now and forevermore shall be glorious. Rest in him. Find in Jesus our ultimate Sabbath, our shalom, our satisfaction, our completeness, our wholeness, our unity with one another, our love in our families. Center your lives around this one who has brought peace into the world and has reconciled us to a loving and holy God. Let's pray. Oh God, what wonderful hope we have in Christ. We thank you, Prince of Peace, for coming into the world to save us that we might live forever and that we might know this peace. Speak to us now, even in this moment, and help us to lay hold of it, to seek you and to know you as we ought, and to then be bearers of that peace into the world, ministering the gospel to those all around us. We pray for help in this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.